Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Of all the bands that emerged from the 1990s neo-jam band movement, No band's music has been more enduring and influential, and no band's following has been and continues to be as passionate and as rabid as that of Fish. Unlike peers such as Blues Traveler and Dave Matthews Band, Fish didn't have anything remotely like a hit radio single, and MTV largely ignored them. Yet, like the Grateful Dead before them, their success and impact could never be measured by sheer number of records sold. Like the Dead, their concerts were ultra-sensory extravaganzas of virtuosic improvisation that attracted fans from all across the hippie and rock counterculture spectrum, offering a diverse and eclectic range of music for people indulging in any kind of drug of choice. Or no drugs at all. Like with Deadheads, Fishheads transcend generational boundaries and their shows to this day feature middle-aged fans who remember the glory days of the 1990s as well as young Gen Z people who are discovering the many riches of Fish's music. Yet, while the Grateful Dead were a touchstone influence on Fish, especially in regard to their nomadic fans following them around on tour and their permission of fans taping and distributing their live shows, there was so much more to the band's musical palette than what drove Jerry Garcia and company. Funk, jazz, Latin music, reggae, hard rock, and electronic dance textures would go on to feature prominently in the band's smorgasbord of styles. Just as importantly, they were pioneers of the internet in the early 1990s in how the early website fish.net, created and operated by fans, served as a proto-blog for fans to connect with each other, thus cultivating and fostering what would become a massive and legendarily loyal fan base. By the end of the 1990s, no other American band could draw upwards of 80,000 people to a single band multi-night festival. By doing so, the band provided the template for yearly festivals that we see in the U.S. now, such as Coachella, Bonnaroo, and the single venue Lollapalooza Festival. Music critics, even to this day, have never been enamored with Fish. But we're doing more than just defending them. Yours truly, curmudgeons, are going the extra mile in proclaiming that this band indeed does have a considerable legacy. As big as, if not even bigger than, some of the bands and artists who inspired them. So, break out your patchouli, light some incense, 
pop a cap of shrooms, or just light one up as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you fish in defense of a legacy. So yeah, uh, we determined the original idea for this episode uh, wouldn't fly uh, in defense of R. Kelly. Uh, no, no, that just, that just wasn't going to fly. So, uh, so we went with the uh, artists that are much nearer and much dearer to our hearts, uh, namely fish. So, uh, with that, Arturo, how's everything going in Gwangju, South Korea? And fish are not going to prison for like, what, how many, how many years does R. Kelly have now, uh, attacked, tacked on to his sentence? Uh, at least 30. Um, Jeez. <laughs> and he just got convicted of the other stuff in Chicago. So let's see what gets added to it. Uh, yeah. And I let, let's not get into the details, folks, but let's just say that that, that was not that was my least favorite read of the entire year. Uh, doing the, uh, OK, anyway, yeah. let, let us let us focus on something much more positive and much more fun, uh, right. namely uh, Vermont, Vermont's finest uh, import uh, fish. Yeah. yeah. Uh, relevant to guys like us. Oh, totally sure. relevant. And uh, and I like to say that this episode that we're about to embark on, uh, I alluded to it a little bit in the in our parameter setter for this episode, but uh, this is a really personal episode for us, for the two of us, yours truly curmudgeons, because uh, Chris and I were both in college in Syracuse, New York, from 1993 to 1997. And that period came right smack in the middle of Fish's golden period, their golden era, which is basically from the late 1980s until 2000 when they went on hiatus. And it's really, uh, you really we really have to stress how important Fish was to the soundtrack of our college years. They made up a huge portion of that soundtrack to our college years. Chris had Pearl Jam and Neil Young. Uh, me, I had a little bit of that too, but I also got into hip hop with Public Enemy and A Tribe Called Quest and the Beastie Boys. But Fish was a huge part. And we both got into Fish at the same time. They were blowing up at in exactly that period. And for that 93 to 97 period, they were becoming one of the biggest bands in America. And being in a Northeastern college in the early to mid-1990s, um, it, it's, it's really hard for listeners who weren't there at that time to understand what a phenomenon fish were becoming for in this period, 92, 93, all the way into the late 90s. They really were a phenomenon that like that people that just took people by surprise. No one saw this band of all bands being the like underground uh, cult band of the decade. And uh, being in Syracuse, New York, uh, where a lot of people from the Northeast were not only living there, but going to school there and fish were just flowering and they were just taking over. And it really was something back in the nineties to be privy and seeing this culture, the fish head culture grow during this time period. And Chris and I were just, you and I were just, you know, swept into it. During sure. This yeah. Period. Yeah. We were a couple of impressionable 18 year old kids that were uh, learning to absorb uh, the vast 
uh, sort of catalog that uh, yeah. you know forms this uh, podcast in our uh, uh, mid forties. A couple of uh, uh, things related to to what you said. Uh, Hoist by Fish, mm. which we'll talk about, was probably the album that got me out of the post Kurt Cobain suicide uh, funk. Right. Because it came out, or Down With Disease at least hit the radio about the same time, or a couple yeah. of weeks uh, later. It was before uh, freshman year uh, ended. And so uh, so that was that was pretty special. And uh, one thing to understand, folks, too, is that Syracuse, New York, uh, was part of that Northeast touring corridor uh, yeah. that really helped the, uh, the leaders of that jam band scene uh, Tone, uh, tune, uh, fine tune their uh, their sound, and gain their confidence uh, as live bands. Uh, uh, for instance, Fish wasn't on the bill, but on the initial uh, six date Horde tour in 1992, Syracuse was a stop yeah. uh, along that tour. So, the context of being in that city and that if there was a music scene in in Syracuse, a little bit of one, but being in that city at that time uh, with that band and a couple of others. Uh, was pretty special. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't see Fish live until several years later, but you saw them at the absolute peak of their superpowers. Oh, oh absolutely. <laughs> and we'll talk about a little bit about that, uh, you know, in segment, uh, the first uh, segment dedicated to the band. But yeah, my first show was in July of 1994 uh, in Saratoga, New York, at what they call SPAC, uh, the Saratoga Performance uh, Performing Arts Center. Um Special experience. Uh, so that's uh, that's what I'll say. You know what else is a special experience? What? Passing over into the parallel universe. Oh, nice segue. Yeah, here, here, here we are uh, over on this side of the space-time uh, continuum again. Uh, it's over here that we prop up the artists that we think ought to be propped up and celebrated and on those billboards. And uh, getting those uh, millions and millions and millions of uh, streams uh, online. Uh, I saw an interview with Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie uh, this yeah. week where he was uh, not really lamenting, but more or less bitching and, and being angry about the streaming economy where uh, Tyler, or Tyler, Taylor Swift uh, yeah. and a couple of those can make much, 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 much more money uh, based on their counting stats uh, from uh, streaming and where Death Cab really has to scrap and claw and kind of rely on their quote unquote cult and the road uh, to get yeah. there. So uh, on this side, not to say Death Cab for Cutie is still on a pedestal on this side. If you'd have talked to me 20 years ago, uh, yes, uh, not anymore. So anyway, uh, on to the artists that we are propping up in the parallel universe. Uh, <laughs> And uh, within this segment, we cover albums either uh, newly and freshly released or released within the last uh, 10 years. In that latter category, we uh, dive into our parallel vault. Uh, So uh, we generally grab from that. So uh, this week, uh, or at least on this episode, Arturo, uh, who you got? Yes, in a parallel universe where rock music is still a pop cultural mainstream thing, This punk rock band would be huge, and they would be the breakout stars of 2022. Who are they? I'll tell you who they are. For almost the past 10 years, Australia has been producing arguably the best rock and roll music on the planet. From Courtney Barnett to Amel and the Sniffers 
to sometimes King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, <laughs> the <laughs> Aussies have been making rock music that at once harkens back to tradition while also showing the way forward for the overall genre. The latest band to prove this to be true is Queensland Australian natives, The Chats, and their follow-up to their excellent 2020 debut, High Risk Behavior. Now, that debut album became both a critical and commercial sensation down under, nowhere else really, (laughs) uh, uh, with their fun, funny, raw, raunchy brand of punk rock, owing more to the hard-nosed, no-bullshit 1970s punk sound, more so than Green Day-ish pop punk. The new album that came out this year, the excellently titled Get Fucked, (laughs) has a nastier, heavier, hardcore punk edge to it. It's as if the boys have graduated from the Damned and the Saints, another great Australian band, to Minor Threat and Early Husker Du. A lot of this has to do with the band's change in guitarists. Original guitarist Josh Price has been replaced by Josh Hardy. And not only is the guitar sound thicker and heavier, Hardy is technically a better player and, and oh, much yeah. better, oh, yeah. much, much better suited to providing the shredding solos and alternating subtle textures that this music requires. The singles 61 GTR and Struck by Lightning are turbocharged blasts of punk rock fury. But other brilliant nuggets abound, such as Panic Attack and the brilliantly titled I've Been Drunk in Every Pub in Brisbane. Uh, (laughs) Despite the chat's dumb, mookish reputation, insightful lyrical themes of social commentary tend to pop up in their records, even in their first one. On Get Fucked, the running theme that emerges is that of the correlation between macho behavior and insecurity. Ticket Inspector explores how low-wage jobs given to undereducated, insecure types tends to bring out a false sense of empowerment and an overall power trip. Emperor of the Beach follows a similar lyrically thematic line with a character study of a white trash meat-headed thug who carves out out his quote-unquote turf in a beach town and threatens anyone who challenges him. To paraphrase Mark Deming in his positive review of the album on allmusic.com, there's a reason this kind of punk rock still exists and hasn't gone away. When it's done with the right kind of energy and the right kind of songwriting, it's unbeatable. It's more punk rock than anything Green Day ever has or was. And that's me saying that, by the way. (laughs) The heavier, faster sound of the new material may put off fans of the naive, childish ruckus of their first album, but it really shouldn't. The chats are quickly evolving into one of the best rock bands on the planet, let alone Australia. And if you don't like the sound of that, then you can all go get fucked. Nice. Uh, yeah, uh, you, you pretty much uh, nailed it. Uh, this is uh, one of the more surprising uh, listens that I've uh, undertaken in the last uh, several years. Uh, really strong. I mean, I like your uh, description 
of the first record uh, as uh, childish and naive uh, because it, it kind of was, uh, it was fun, but you know, uh, songs like the clap and dine and dash, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they, they basically, it was, uh, their life on the ground is, you know, what are they, like 20 years old or something. Yeah. Uh, and so there was that, but here is a, uh, very pleasantly surprising, uh, graduation into a little bit more sophistication, uh, more energy and the change of guitarists, uh, is makes a world uh, of difference. And so, you know, mostly the cuteness is gone. Uh, yeah. I mean, granted, the best song on here, I you mentioned is I've Been Drunk in Every Pub in Brisbane. But, <laughs> but, but hell, uh, ACDC could bask uh, in that one uh, with a lot of credibility as well. They've yeah. probably been drunk in every, every pub in all of Australia. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, the riffs here have more of an anarchic uh, feel. Uh, the singing is more unhinged. Uh, the singing, the soloing, it's all uh, relentless here. Uh, it's my kind of economy, 13 songs, 27 minutes. And it, it's, in a, in a way, it's like one long song, uh, <laughs> which could be bad, but also very good. Let's uh, segue into what I'm covering uh, this this week. So, Yeah, and, and I would like to say the band you're going into, Built to Spill, one of this podcast's favorite groups. How do they fit into the parallel universe easily? In a parallel universe where rock music were still a thing, Built to Spill would be an arena rock institution, the likes of the Foo Fighters, and it would be Doug Marsh in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, not Dave Grohl. Yeah, well, in, in a lot of ways, you're right. Uh, Doug, Marsh is, uh, Doug Marsh is a uh, guitar hero's uh, hero, guitar hero. Uh, literally, uh, what's his name there? Albert Hammond Jr. from the Strokes had an interview yeah. where he said that the uh, opening riff and uh, arpeggio to uh, Going Against Your Mind from uh, 2006 Universe was one of the best things he had ever heard. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, so he gets his props from musicians, maybe not so much from buyers. Uh, I guess uh, proof in the pudding in that is that uh, their new record, uh, When the Wind Forgets Your Name, is being released on Sub Pop. Uh, they, they were on, I believe it was Warner brothers for, uh, 26, well, yeah. 25 years, yeah. uh, roughly. So this is their first, uh, foray into indie, uh, literally since, uh, uh, the masterwork from 1994, there's nothing wrong with love. Uh, you mentioned it, this is, uh, both the spell is kind of the resonant house band of the curmudgeon rock report. We both <laughs> love them. Uh, now this album, when the wind forgets your name, it's their first album in seven years. Uh, and it is easily easily uh the band's best record since uh, i just mentioned it 2006 is you in reverse and it may be better uh certainly tighter uh but it may also be better not ready to make that declaration need a few more listens but uh anyway uh so to set this up a little bit uh there's an interview uh kexp which is probably the greatest rock station or uh, rock and roll station left uh in the u.s out of seattle uh, they have these wonderful, uh, they put them on video, but they have these wonderful live in studio performances and they bring in bands, you know, cool bands, old bands, new bands. And they do like a half hour segment with an interview by DJ Cheryl Waters. Uh, Built to Spill just did one of those uh, a couple months back or, or just before uh, the release of this record. So I imagine it was probably five or six weeks ago now. And uh, March in that interview says that this record, uh, again, When the Wind Forgets Your Name, uh, was basically recovered in isolation because of COVID. Um, 
the drummer and bassist uh, for this record, who we'll talk about here uh, in a bit, uh, they worked in isolation in Brazil. Uh, they had uh, toured, uh, they had backed uh, March briefly on some touring in uh, 2019. And uh, I think part of right before uh, COVID in 2020. Uh, and so they basically, it was uh, tape trading, <laughs> if you want. They were just kind of, you know, uh, March was doing his thing and feeding those guys for their tracks and and they honed it uh, from there. And I and so March says that uh, here, and I think you can tell that the isolation of that situation and at what it forced, it, it seeps into this record in both joyful and uh, downtrodden ways. Uh, thematically, and maybe you'll disagree with me, Arthur, but I think this is arguably an exact counter to There's Nothing Wrong With Love, which mm. you know, effectively put BTS on the map 28 years ago. Yeah, these guys have been around for a long time. Uh, then uh, the mid-20s version of Duck March could look to the sky and dream of all the possibilities and the expanse of the universe. Uh, you did that figuratively on Car and Reasons and literally on Big Dipper. Uh so here's here's a contrast to where he is. So now in his early 50s, it looks like March is looking up there in the sky and he sees a whole lot of uh, resignation and empty space. Mm. Uh, you know, he's he's there as an old man and weathered man and instead of a bright eyed kid, because, uh, you know, that record was part you know, teenage nostalgia and part here I am in my, my mid 20s and the world is my oyster. So let's do some lyrical contrast. So. Uh, Big Dipper, uh, once when I was a little something, uh, when I was a little someone pointed out to me some constellations, uh, but the Big Dipper's all I could see. That brontosaurus must have stood a thousand miles high. That brontosaurus laying on its side up in the sky. Now contrast that with words or lyrics from the uh, banging uh, album opener here, Gonna Lose, uh, his best riff in a long time. And uh, that goes, I've come to realize time is all wrong. Answers materialize and then they're gone. They were here, but the ones like that disappear and they don't come back. Jeesh. So you'd think with that evident mood, uh, this would drive a downbeat record. Far, far, far from it. Uh, This album is an intense and at times dreamlike romp. Uh, featuring uh, March's most purposeful singing and soloing in ages and some really inspired groups. uh, groups. I mean, on Tethered Moon, uh, which was the 2015 record that uh, preceded uh, preceded this one, with the exception of Master Blaster Living Zoo, uh, March sounded bored and defeated, and boy, did it show. Uh, That album is terrible. But now... uh, uh, you, when you watch that key KEXP uh, thing, it's available on YouTube. Uh, go watch it. Uh, March, kind of, he kind of plays to his shoulder shrugging, unassuming persona. And uh, he tells uh, w- uh, Cheryl Waters that the album, eh, it was what it was. And, you know, I needed to get it done. Yeah. And he does that. Well, you know, if this is what it was, uh, March and his collaborators were in quite a good place. Uh March actually allows himself to experiment more than he has in 25 years. Talking, of course, there about 1997's remarkable prog rock-inspired masterwork, Perfect From Now On, uh, which I actually still listen to uh, once a month in my car. Wow. Uh, Now, maybe that newfound or rediscovered experimentation comes from his status as the only guitarist in the band now. Uh, There's no more accompanying wackiness from the brilliant uh, coupling of Jim Roth and Brett Netson. 
And so March is kind of on his own here. I mean, literally there's three, for, I think for the first time ever, there's only three musicians on a built to spill record. And if there was only three, you'd have to go back like 30 years uh, to find that. And so, uh, so, but being on his own, you get this uh, kind of freedom. And so uh, March at times he drowns his vocals, actually all throughout the record, he drowns his vocals and occasionally in his, his guitar parts in a cool, but weird warbling psychedelic echo. Uh, it's pretty unique. And uh, this lends itself well to both his more traditional dinosaur junior approaching rockers, like the uh, tremendous spider web, uh, which is a reverently late '80s style uh, stomp rock nugget with March's best lead lines and soloing in ages. Uh, it's the guitar work on that song is remarkable, uh, and that uh, echo especially lifts the more elongated trips uh, through the Looking Glass. Uh, concerning the latter, there, uh, Doug is a well-known fan of reggae, uh, something he's only offered hints of in the past, uh, such on such as on uh, Time Trap from Keep It Like a Secret and Conventional Wisdom from You Universe. But here, with the song Rocksteady, he goes full-blown dub reggae, even naming the song Rocksteady, which is <laughs> actually a genre uh, within dub reggae, a subgenre of dub reggae. And this is actually a wonderful thing. Uh, syncopated drum beats, rhythm guitar, exotic acid-washed percussion, and some fun spooky organ uh, mixed in. Uh, great song. Uh, as it turns out, uh, March can't really take full credit for his re-embrace of the weird and for those vocal effects. Uh, I mentioned uh, that rhythm section earlier, uh, these two guys uh, from Brazil. Uh, I've seen a bunch of lazy reviews of this record so far. The best of these, by the way, is from Stereo Gum. That's a solid one, but still it does, it commits the sin of presenting it as, hey, it's Doug March working with a couple of random dudes from Brazil. Uh, well, now those guys uh, bassist uh, Zhao uh, Casas and uh, drummer and fantastic songwriter arranger Leo Media. And uh, to all you Brazilian listeners, if I mispronounce that, my bad. Um, these guys are members of a marvelously strange little band called Orulha. I believe I pronounced that right. Orulha, O-R-U-A. Uh, go find them. Uh, they're on all the streaming services plus uh, YouTube. Uh, that band, it demonstrates uh, the influences. It's a very strange mix of acid jazz, like, you know, think like, you know, uh, uh, Jacob uh, Pistorius, uh, classic rock and, uh, you know, well, built spell. Uh, you got to check out this band's albums. Uh, they're pretty wild. And uh, hey, that that vocal style, the, the whole washed in the reverb and vocals thing that makes it a hard occasionally to decipher words. Um, that. That comes from Aruya, and that's a Lay Almedia thing. And so March is uh, clearly influenced by that. And I think even some of the, the touches, like the song Elements, has some Brazilian uh, touches to it. Uh, and even touches throughout the record, like chimes and organs and uh, uh, some percussive stuff. Uh, that really comes from Lay Almedia. Uh, that guy's, uh, he's not a guitar hero, but he's pretty, he's pretty damn good. So uh, thus, it is very, very nice to hear Doug March sound uh, absolutely inspired again. The Guitar Hero is finally a Guitar Hero once more. Definitely check out When the Wind Forgets its na uh, Your Name. Oh, and uh, when you do, be sure to wear headphones. Uh, whoa. <laughs> what say you, Artie? You know, I, I think it's a really good record. I don't think it's better than 2006's You in Reverse, 
but it's definitely the songs aren't quite as individually great, but it is a tighter record. It's really oh, yeah. tight, really concise. Oh yeah, nine um, songs, forty-five minutes. Yep. I, I think the music critics kind of like overplayed the psychedelic Brazilian sunshine pop angle on the record. There's yeah, only they did. one. There's only one track where that really is prominent, and that's in the song Elements. And of course, Rocksteady is very much a a, a reggae tribute. But aside from that, this is very much a built to spill record. Uh, yeah, this yeah. Is, it's really, really, it's. I see it as Doug Marsh kind of going back to his, um, going back to what built to spill is supposed to be. The previous album they did or he did in 2015, it was him trying to do really crappy contemporary indie pop, and it really oh, yeah. just it, oh, it, it didn't suit him. Didn't suit him well. But this album is much better. It's different. It's different enough. Because it has slight psychedelia, it's not over overwhelming, overwhelmingly oh, yeah. psychedelic. Yeah, it ain't it ain't Captain Beefheart. Yeah, and 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 it's not perfect from now on. That's a psychedelic record. We're not the only ones in podcast land working hard to defend a legacy of fish. It turns out people quite close to the band are dropping knowledge and talking about their history and legendary output too. Lyricist Tom Marshall co-produces and hosts Undermine which just kicked off its fourth season this week. Much like your curmudgeon rock report, find Undermine where you find all of the other podcasts. This season has a pretty cool hook. Marshall and guest hosts will revisit 25 great fish concerts from the 1990s, all of which they promise will lead to a detailed series of further episodes analyzing Fish's fall 1997 tour. They refer to that tour as, quote, the tour that changed everything. Given Fish's progression as a band during that era, supplying that tour with such a title is perhaps not all that hyperbolic. We definitely are excited to check it out, and you should be too. Again, that's Undermine, with an E, and Tom Marshall manning the proceedings. Cool. Okay, so before we go into our, well, actually a big part of our defense of Fish's legacy, defending their legacy. As we do with a lot of def- our defenses, we start off with myths, okay? Five basic myths about Fish, and we're going to debunk them. And we're going to do so vigorously and correctly. Yes, yes, we are. Okay. okay. For sure. All right. So myth number one about Fish that we're going to debunk that they were virtuoso musicians, but shitty songwriters. Now, while their early records were full of rhythmically complex, jazz-infused music with ambitious chord structures that owed a lot to 1970s British progressive rock, they loosened up as they evolved, and it didn't take them long to do so. By their third album, A Picture of Nectar, in 1992, as we'll delve into later, they were already writing conventional-sounding rock songs with strong elements of funk and swinging Latin music. By Rift, in 1993, they were writing short, concise songs with thematically coherent and mature lyrics. And they were great songs as well. By 1994's Hoist, an album that will forever go down as one of the all-time top 10, how the fuck was this album not a smash success album? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they had become genuinely great songwriters, particularly sticking out among 
among their 1990s jam band peers, uh, many of whom wish they could write songs with the hooks and the melodic grace of fish. Chris? Well, and you got to remember, I mean, this myth gets uh, debunked right off the bat. The first song on Junta from 1988 yeah. is Fee, yeah. which is actually a pretty conventional, pretty, uh, pretty good melodic, yeah. uh, condensed, you know, concise relatively speaking song, uh, yeah. about the only concise thing on that record. And then, <laughs> and then actually Fluffhead, which is on uh, disc two actually, uh, ends or actually is, is pretty, uh, joyous and tight, uh, as well. And so, yeah, no, you're right. The, uh, the evolution was, uh, was really, uh, stunning and it was kind of up and down up until they got the hoist that, yeah. uh, Lawn Boy, uh, wouldn't call that a songwriter's record. It's my favorite of their records, but not really a songwriter's record. And then you get to a picture of Nectar and you get, uh, stuff like Stash, which was sophisticated, but very, very strong. And, uh, especially Chalk Dust Torture, which, uh, you know, that riff belongs in, uh, the Riff Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. And then, yeah, I, like you said, by the time they get to hoist, uh, you get down with disease and sample in a jar, which despite its, you know, silly lyrics from Tom Marshall, uh, stay tuned, um, yeah. is actually really great. I mean, it's just one of the few instances where the goofball lyrics, uh, from those nascent uh, studio days is juxt- juxtaposed really with that kind of poppy uh, discipline. And so uh, I've always been a fan of the two point songs I would point to here. And this is pre Billy breeds, which kind of, you know, stands on its own uh, platform. It's it kind of, you know, it's a towering figure uh, in this discography or catalog. Uh, I am a big fan of rifts uh, songs, uh, the great divide and fast enough for you. Yeah. Um, beautiful ballad. Yeah. Yeah. And a great, the great divide is, is really, really strong. Uh, it's uh uh, it's it's clever it's it's kind of jazz and it's it's not a soaring riff kind of thing it's almost like a creeping riff mm. uh but it's but it's really really strong so yes uh they had uh songwriting chops from the very beginning uh even though anastasio had you know the ambition uh you know for like 50 other ambitions uh they they snuck some st- good stuff in there absolutely more than snuck in they they pushed yeah. it forward all sure right enough. myth number 2 they were nothing more than Grateful Dead imitators. What a bunch yes. of bullshit. I yeah. know. Yes, the dead were Fish's primary influence, especially in how Fish built their careers in a DIY manner, starting small in the college circuit and little by little building their enthusiastic following until they were selling out arenas without any radio or video support. Okay. And yes, the sweet tones of Jerry Garcia's guitar were a massive influence on the way Trey Anastasio played. And yes, musically, you can definitely spot the particular mark of the 1970s Dead in Fish's music. But Fish were way, way, way more than that. While the Dead dabbled in funk and jazz, the latter two genres were deeply indebted in Fish's musical DNA since the beginning of their career. Um, The jazz especially pronounced through keyboardist and classically trained Paige McConnell. Anastasio himself has always admitted that the British progressive rock of the 1970s, particularly uh, Peter Gabriel era Genesis and Yes, was his primary influence as a young musician. And you can hear it in Fish's early records. Oh, yeah. It's It's a credit to them that at their best, Fish made those influences listenable and yes, even danceable. 
the complex musical arrangements and wacky, zany humor of Frank Zappa were also big milestones for the band, albeit without Zappa's cynicism and blatantly offensive toilet humor. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Jerry Garcia wasn't the only guitarist to influence Anastasio, as the lush, emotional, and evocative tones of Santana were always noticeable, as was Santana's Latin jazz rock hybrid infusion that, as a group, Fish would routinely turn back to. Chris? Yeah, uh, that's a great call, actually. When I hear Stash in my head, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's that's very, very Santana, especially the outro. That's yeah. very Santana. Uh, another one that I've always... And maybe, you know, I've never heard Anastasio talk about it, but he also evokes uh, early uh, Dire Straits, uh, mm. Mark Knopfler, yeah. uh, those ki- that kind of uh, dexterity. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, this whole, you know, dead thing. Yes. I mean, it, that comes from the similarities in the whole culture and, and yeah. live uh, thing. But yeah, musically, uh, do they touch on the dead? Sure. Uh, you got to remember when, and we mentioned this last episode, when uh, the dead had their 50th anniversary show in Chicago a few years back, uh, Anastasio played Jerry Garcia and was able to uh, capture uh, Garcia's guitar tones, which is kind of amazing. Uh, but let's go from there. Uh, the Grateful Dead never did anything quite like Reba, for sure, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, from Lawn Boy, which is one of their more fun uh, uh, jammy songs. Uh, that, that goes from funk to almost, like you said, almost like a space rock Kind of, uh, it's still yeah. kind of funky, still tight, but kind of uh, like kind of mellowish, uh, you know, sort of marijuana uh, uh, inspired uh, jam. Uh, and so, it, you know, this between the sense of humor and those touches that from that same album, Split Open and Melt, uh, you know, d- Dead, maybe Shakedown Street, but not really. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they had they had other. Uh, they had other things that uh, the dead couldn't really approach. Paige McConnell is really the def- the main differentiator there. Sure. Uh, because of his, his, like you said, he's classically trained pianist. And uh, a lot of those early songs uh, in mm-hmm. those first four or five records feature uh, uh, really fun uh, winding. They usually last about 90 second uh, piano solos. Mm-hmm. Uh kind of in the spirit of the Allman brothers where there were, you know, the, the longer workouts always had an organ uh, solo yeah. by, uh, mm-hmm. by Greg Allman. Uh, but, 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 but McConnell's a way better keyboardist than Greg Allman was. Well, yeah. Well, no shit. Uh, but it's, you know, comes, it's like basically from the same, you know, playbook, yeah. but that's not a playbook that um, the dead never really went into that. I mean, they had, right. you know, they had, you know, a, a pig pen who was a very, uh, much a blues inspired organist, uh, especially yeah. on that first record. And then they had uh, Keith Gacho, who was all over the place. Um, yeah. And so, you know, not quite as, uh, you know, not quite as uh, supple. Right. Uh, so there was that. And then one last thing, uh, I don't think the dead uh, for as wha- for as drugged out and as for zany as they were, I don't know if they could ever come up with something like game henge. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, well, you, you're going to talk about game henge in a bit, Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll 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 talk about Game Henge. Uh, maybe you should talk about it too, Arthur, because I never fully understood what the hell was going on. Uh, well, there. I, I I I like your description of it. We'll get to that when we talk about Fish's brief history. All right. Yeah. So myth number three: their lyrics sucked. Okay. Yes, early on, Fish didn't work too hard on their words. <laughs> they, were, they were too occupied gelling musically and honing their chops as an incomparable live band. 
Look no further than the track David Bowie from the 1989 <laughs> album Junta, whose lyrics consist solely of the words David Bowie and UB40, UB40. Yeah. repeated several times. Yep. When, when that kind of simplicity wasn't the case, Trey Anastasio and his lyrical collaborator Tom Marshall, working much in the same way Jerry Garcia did with Robert Hunter, early on dealt in surrealist fantasia, whimsical psychedelic imagery, and stories evoking postmodern fairy tales uh, with occasionally dark undertones. As stated earlier, that changed abruptly with 1993's Rift album, with its resonant story, uh, the whole album, really. Uh, it's kind of a concept album of a, of a romantic relationship falling apart. The Anastasio-Marshall partnership continued to mature with some beautifully crafted and emotional lyrics that perfectly accompanied the band's maturing songcraft that characterized their 1989-2000 peak-slash-golden period that we'll cover in this episode. Chris? Yeah, you get a sense. Of, and I think it's probably uh, Tom Marshall's personal maturity. Yeah. Uh, I, I get a sense he was obviously, you know, just from just out of college to now, you know, in his 30s, probably family or whatever, you yeah. know, been through a couple of breakups. Uh, so I think that's evidence. Although I will say this, uh, uh, Gula Papyrus from uh, A Picture of Nectar features the best use of the words recursive virus in rock and roll history. <laughs> so uh, at least at least there's that. Uh, but the Great Divide, actually, again, uh, that's a really strong lyric. And there's actually strong lyrics all through uh, Rift. I think that's where you start to get some of that, uh, some of that maturity and some of that. I mean, even the title song, uh, mm. you know, has has a lot of uh, depth uh, to it. So, you know, simple uh, depth. Um, and so by the time you get the Billy Breeds, which... You know, again, I think is a, their, their monument. Uh, you get lyrics uh, such as the one, uh, one of the verses from the song Waste, which could, coincidentally was uh, one of my friend's uh, first dance songs at his wedding, which is oh, wow. pretty, pretty interesting choice. Uh, so uh, there's the first uh, verse goes, don't want to be an actor pretending on the stage. Don't want to be a writer with my thoughts out on the page. Don't want to be a painter because everyone comes to look. Don't want to be anything where my life's an open book. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty nice uh, uh, distillation of keeping privacy and just you know settling down. Basically, you know, yeah. come waste come waste your time with me. Uh, very right. sweet. Um, right. So, so yeah. So I mean, that's like you said. So yes, uh, that myth has about thirty percent truth, uh, but there's enough to debunk it and uh, make it crumble. So maybe if like you had the word myth, maybe like the second half of the, of the letter M stands. <laughs> yeah. But the yeah. rest of it. Yeah. No way. Yeah. So yeah. next right. myth. Number four, they were of their 1990s time. Now this is the laziest, dumbest criticism anyone can make. Yes. Fish's halcyon days, especially creatively were in the 1990s. So fucking what? Everything is of its time. Every yeah, no piece shit. of every piece of music that's ever been made by any artist is of its time. What's the implication that Fish's music hasn't aged well? Yeah, well, tell that to Vampire Weekend, one of America's biggest indie rock bands and avowed fish heads. 
Tell that to the New Jersey band Garcia Peoples, one of the most critically acclaimed up-and-coming jam bands that, despite their name, sound decidedly more like fish than the Grateful Dead. <laughs> and, you know, and you know what? Tell that to Built to Spill, who are known for their lengthy improvisational jams on stage. I know, I've seen them three times. <laughs> uh, yeah. In any case, aside from their music, the, o- the other major aspect of Fish's legacy is that is what they did for live performance. They not only updated and modernized the notion of hippie jam band audience culture for the end of the 20th century and beyond, most notably with their and their fans' pioneering use of the internet. We'll get more into that later. But they created the template for the American version of multi-night festivals that oh, yeah. well-known festivals such as Co- uh, Coachella and Bonnaroo appropriated. After Fish worked the European festival circuit in 1992, they rightfully thought to themselves, why aren't we doing this in America? They, sh- <laughs> they shelled that idea until they grew popular enough to exploit it, and that they did, staging one band, Fish being the one band, <laughs> multi-night festivals, that drew upwards of 80,000 people from the Clifford Ball in 1996 to the Great Went in 1997 to Lemon Wheel in 1998. Fish took the European music festival template and put their own unique spin on it, influencing countless count concert promoters in the United States in the process. Chris? Yeah, I, you, that's, I mean, in terms of uh, putting them on a continuum, uh, you, you got that right. Uh, they kind of put themselves on a continuum uh, that you know goes as far back as like the 30s and 40s, if you think about it. But it, yeah. but it's that sort of 60s, 70s uh, sort of classic rock and sort of the early jam and early prog. Uh, you know, they they basically plugged themselves into that and, like you said, put their own spin on it, modernized it. <clears throat> you know, put in that funk and that jazz and uh, you know that cleverness uh, into it. And then if you look at it, like their legacy we're defending their legacy carries on in the form of those one band festival shows and actually carries on to, you know, the cult uh, remains. I mean, they just, Mm. and they just played a smallish festival couple of days in Colorado. Mm. Um, And so they're still out there. They did that over uh, Labor Day weekend. And you got to remember too, that they early on and even uh, on uh, Billy Breeze and later years, uh, bluegrass, Barbershop quartet. They uh, they had a weird thing for barbershop quartet touches, you know, like yeah. my, my my sweet one. And there's a couple of those on uh, down. Uh, excuse me, hoist uh, as well. So kind of that silly barbershop quartet thing. Uh, they they like that. So oh, and we definitely need to mention that if you think that they were of the '90s, BS. Uh, all you have to do is uh, go back to Halloween of 1995. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe the first one was Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they had a little mini tradition uh, starting in 94 during uh, on a Halloween show. They would play a musical costume and they Correct. would cover cover an entire album by an artist in their entirety. Halloween 94, they did the Beatles' White Album. Every single track. 1995, yes. The Who's Quadrophenia. Double album. Every single track. And then remain in light. 
96, Talking Heads Remain in Light. And then 1998, in uh, early November, they surprised people in Salt Lake City, Utah, when they did Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, and then uh, about a decade later, uh, they did another one of these, and I think it was Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, Funny one about that is uh, that they, a couple of ones on their short lists in that period uh, were MGMT's Oracular Spectacular, yeah, and uh, uh, Loveless by My Bloody Valentine that right. Trey really wanted to see if he could figure out Kevin Shields' secrets, yeah, and you know with uh, you know tuning all the amps, but uh, uh, Dark Side of the Moon won, <laughs> or yeah. excuse me, The Wall, The Wall. No, I, yeah. I don't think it was The Wall. I think it was uh, uh, in two thousand nine they did Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. Oh, there you go. Okay, yeah. I knew I knew it was one of those. Yeah. Uh, so thank thank you for the uh, real time fact check, yes. uh, but it's the same it's the same spirit. So uh, yeah. yeah, they they really like you said the musical costume. Uh, they were not of the they were not blind melon. Right, absolutely. All right, myth number five and the final myth that their endless live jams were boring. Now, starting at the end of the nineteen nineties, Fish's live jams did get boring. Guitarist and band leader Trey Anastasio's escalating drug addiction and the band's sapping live energy and disenchantment due to their growing fan base's sudden inclusion of aggressive frat boy types and non-music loving druggies led to either long, slow, boring reggae or long, slow, boring funk jams. Either way, long, slow and boring. And this pattern continued, with some exceptions, until their first hiatus in 2000 and their breakup in 2004. I can personally attest to this after seeing Fish in Long Island uh, in 1999. It completely put me off Fish for a long time after that. However, Hmm. from the solidification of the band's core four lineup in the mid-1980s until about 1997... Fish were an incendiary live act and a verifiable force of nature on stage. In fact, what separated Fish from the Grateful Dead in the early 1990s, when Fish started to become prominent, was the sheer energy and visceral power of their live shows. Yeah, kind of like the Dead, but with Rolling Stones swagger, Led Zeppelin forcefulness, bravado from the who and an accessible and endearing funkiness borrowed from talking heads admittedly one of anastasio's favorite bands sure the the improvisations themselves were anything but slow and boring the nearly telepathic connection that the members of fish had amongst themselves honed from endless hours of practice jam sessions that dwarfed the running time of their live shows led their improvised jams to have a coherent, almost coordinated and constructed feeling to them, the best of which leading to emotional, cathartic crescendos powered by Anastasio's emotional guitar outbursts, Paige McConnell's jazz-based piano flourishes, Mike Gordon's fluid yet lyrical bass lines, and drummer John Fishman's understated way of holding down polyrhythms. Chris? Uh, yeah. Uh, one thing you should mention is that uh, a, a huge differentiator was the light show. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the lighting at fish shows were amazing. And they yeah. also the use of fog uh, yeah. and, and props. 
uh, they yeah. were a pretty good prop band too. So that, you know, that their shows were, uh, uh, were both awesome and at times silly. Uh, I yeah. actually, since you only saw them once in 1999, I saw them at least a half a dozen times. It's either six mm-hmm. or seven times. The first one being in July of 1994 at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center in Saratoga, New York. One of the best shows I've ever seen. It was it was a tremendous experience. Like you said, visceral. It was powerful, you know, just seeing it and hearing it for the first time. I remember they did one workout, and I want to say it was David Bowie, and it went on for 20 or 25 minutes. But this was – they had a gimmick for a while where uh, bassist Mike Gordon and Anastasio would play while they were uh, bouncing on trampolines, little trampolines. You know, the, the, the techies would come in, slip them, and then they would do that. And uh, in that one, they had um, fog so that you saw silhouettes of them mm. doing that while they're jamming and not missing a note. Uh, you, they have an underappreciated athleticism, too. Those guys were in shape, uh, especially Mike Gordon. That, that guy was jacked. Um, so you have to remember, it, so it's the show uh, that really uh, uh, matters in some respects. And then, yeah, then the, the music and the, the adventuresomeness of the, or that's a word, uh, their adventuresome, uh, uh, live or the jamming and the soloing and the, uh, the, the right turns of the unexpected curveballs. Uh, I, uh, implore everyone listening to, uh, do some homework, uh, whether you're an old head like us or, uh, you're a newbie, uh, go seek out live versions of songs like Harpua and Slave to the Traffic Light and Divided Sky uh, and David Bowie and uh, a number of, of, of others. Like even Week Up All Groove, which is a Mike Gordon song, has uh, has some of this that that goes on. So the uh, the evidence is there. And like I said, they're still playing. Like First Two is another one that was always awesome live. So there's that. And, you know, and don't just rely on, and if you want to, if you go streaming sites or you're reading discographies, don't just rely on their uh, 1995 uh, live album. I think it's 1995, uh, a live one. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, it's a clever pun, a live one, uh, as opposed to a live one. Uh, yeah, it, it doesn't capture the full sensory experience of it. You're only getting a slice. So uh, seek out the true uh, tapes. There's actually a box set that captures six out of the seven sets from the Clifford ball. Uh, that's a good starting point as well. So yeah, uh, amazing live band. And it was as much about the show as it was the playing. Uh, no, these, these weren't a, like stationary guys noodling. On this episode, Chris and I explored the 1990s golden era of that greatest or second greatest of hippie jam bands, Fish. For the next episode, yours truly curmudgeons will move on to a more contemporary band that, while not as big of a cult band as Fish, has in recent years emerged as one of the biggest cult indie rock bands in the U.S. OCs, formerly known as The OCs. They started out in the late noughties, spearheading the psychedelic neo-garage rock movement that also gave us Ty Siegel and King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. But in the last few years, their musical evolution has grown to take on progressive rock, jazz fusion, heavy metal, and hardcore punk. 
In the process, OCs have become one of America's most critically acclaimed bands with one of the most passionate, rabid cult followings around. All leading up to them selling out Colorado's Red Rocks Amphitheater last year. What is it about this band and their overwhelmingly prolific discography that has true blue rock music fans going wild? Tune in next time to the Curmudgeon Rock Report as we contemplate a curious case of OCs. Now, before we go into Fish's studio albums, and incorporated in our album uh, discussions will be the history of the band at that time, let's go into a brief history of Fish before their first album. Everything going in up to uh, their debut album, Junta, in 1989. So this will be a very brief history. I'll do the best I can to make it brief. There you go. Burlington, Vermont, 1983. Trey Anastasio, Mike Gordon, John Fishman, and second guitarist Jeff Holdsworth formed at the University of Vermont in Burlington played their first show of all covers at one of the campus cafeterias. Band temporarily breaks up after Anastasio is suspended from school for a prank involving sending a severed hand to a friend by airmail. Nice. Back in his hometown of Princeton, New Jersey, Anastasio reconnects with old friend, I think high school buddy, Tom Marshall, and together they write a slew of songs that would eventually form the basis of Fish's early material. Band gets back together in fall 1984, settle on the name Fish. Anastasio creates their now timeless logo and they continue to play all around Vermont. 1985, after a gig in tiny Goddard College in Plainfield, Vermont, keyboardist Paige McConnell, a Goddard student who set up the show, convinces the band to let him join them. Rhythm guitarist Holdsworth quits in 1986 after becoming a born-again Christian. I guess smoking pot, tripping on mushrooms, and traveling with a Grateful Dead-loving hippie jam band didn't quite jibe with Holdsworth, Holdsworth's newfound values. Well, either that or, or it, it jived with it a little too much, you know? <laughs> yeah. 1986, the established core Fish Quartet relocate to Goddard College, an experimental school that allows students to set up their own curriculum, and they start to hone their chops and, very slowly, garner a loving cluster of fans. Also, Burlington Luthier, Luthier, by the way, is a craftsman of string instruments, mm-hmm. Burlington Luthier Paul Languedoc, designs custom instruments for Anastasio and Gordon and becomes their full-time sound engineer, a huge and very underrated ingredient to the band's sound and a position Languedoc has to this day, I believe. I could be wrong. 1987, the band relocate to Burlington and become the house band at Nectar's, a downtown restaurant and bar that would be Fish's home base for the next two years. During this time, Fish take Anastasio's college thesis project, a nine-song prog rock song cycle called The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday, and develop a lengthy sci-fi fantasy-based song cycle from it 
called Gamehenge, parts of which would become staples of their live repertoire for many years. Chris, can you tell us a bit about Gamehenge? Yeah, Game Gamehenge is very, very strange. And again, I've never quite understood it uh, fully. But yes, like you said, it's definitely uh, a fantasy. And I think it was Anastasio's attempt to capture the magic and the spirit of Gentle Giant and Yes and uh, Genesis, especially Yes. There's a lot of that. But like you said, I think they only played it in its entirety a few times early on. Uh, but the one song that endured the most was Wilson. Yeah. Uh, and uh, which was great. You know, one of their great intros and one of the great sort of their uh, uh, sort of chant uh, openings. But yeah, this was basically what if Spinal Tap was good uh, <laughs> is, is basically what Game Hinge is. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I think, you know, Trey in a lot of ways, uh, I get the sense that he one of his inspirations as a music student or as early was to kind of take uh, I'll take like a malign genre or a maligned idea. And I will make it palatable and I will make it work in a way that impresses uh, non, uh, musos. And so mm-hmm. I think that game hinge kind of falls into that and, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's jammy. It's obviously challenging. It's, it's twisty bendy. And, uh, I mean, it's total, total, like, like, like pothead, you know, comic book, goofy, uh, uh, kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, we need to track that down. Uh, there's a few, there's a few performances of it. I know that they busted it out a couple of times in 1995, I believe it was one of those mid, uh, nineties tours. They, uh, they actually did that. That was kind of a feature of a couple. And it was one of those things that online where people were all excited. Is this going to be at the night? Is this going to be the night? Is this going to be the night? And right, right. a couple, couple of times it was. And so it's kind of like, you know, Willy Wonka and the, and the magic ticket. Uh, so I imagine that must've been really, really exciting. So yeah, that was, that was the, one of the first indications that that band was going to be different, different, mm-hmm. but special. So moving on to their history, 1988, the band start playing all around the new England area House parties, clubs, dance clubs, community centers, you name it. Fish play their first shows outside of New England by doing a week-long residence in Colorado. You can actually find bootlegs uh, and recordings of this show on Fish's website. 1989, the band wants to play the famous Paradise Rock Club in Boston. The owners don't want to book them because they're (laughs) unknown. What does the band do? They rent the club themselves, basically pay to play. Nice. And they sell out the venue with a caravan of fans from Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine flocking to the show. It's their breakthrough in the big city touring circuit. And soon enough, shows in New York, Philadelphia, and beyond beckoned. Fishhead culture is born. The band hires Chris Kuroda as their lighting director. Who is still there, by the way. Who is still definitely there, a position he still has. And you referenced, Chris, those uh, incredible fish light shows. His innovative light shows provide a crucial element to the live fish experience and would only get more impressive as the years go on. By the end of 1989, two key things happen. They have a profile written about them in Relics Magazine. What is Relics? Relics was, I think, a magazine 
devoted to the Grateful Dead, Deadhead culture, and anything hippie jam band related. And the second thing, they self-produce and self-release their debut album, Junta, distributed via cassette at all their shows. Which leads us to Fish's debut album from 1989, Junta. Now, on this album, Fish's virtuosic collective musicianship is already on display with the band's unique funk-jazz hybrid take on 1970s UK prog rock on multi-section epics such as You Enjoy Myself, The Divided Sky, and David Bowie, all three of which are to this day considered signature Fish songs. These songs are all natural progressions uh, from Trey Anastasio's complex yet accessible Gamehenge song cycle, which we just discussed. Not normally a band self-producing and self-releasing an album solely on cassette and selling them at their club shows would elicit the equivalent of nothing. But by 1989, word of mouth about the band's epic live shows had spread throughout the New England region and was starting to infiltrate major East Coast cities like New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. Chris? Yeah, uh, to a point that you've made, uh, there's... uh only like one band I can think of that rode the wave of word of mouth and sort of grass ra- grassroots pushing, you know, kind of proving yourself and getting yeah. people to talk about. It. There's only one band I can think of that's comparable and that's Metallica mm. uh, in terms of you know, starting from obscurity and clubs and then the word gets out and then it goes to the next state and then the next state. And then soon enough, you've got, like you said, uh, it, you rent out the club and all these people come. And so yeah. they're able to do that. And so uh, their organic progression is just extraordinary. Uh, an old editor of mine, Richard Gear, G-E-H-R, uh, <laughs> uh, has written at least one book on fish and chronicles the sort of the, uh, the buildup of this culture of, of fish and how the phenomenon is uh, pretty much unmatched. Um, really, uh, if it is matched, it would be like, again, the dead or Metallica yeah. or a band like that. So that's one point to make. So Junta, uh, I want to share a quote from Trey Anastasio that really kind of gets at uh, Fish's motivation and MO and kind of explains how they come out of the gate with this record. So found this, uh, hey, you know, the magic of the internet. Uh, Trey says, quote, I always dreamed of writing in an orchestral t- context, but when you finish a piece, you want to hear it. So we played everything with fish. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the idea is it was basically all inclusive. The idea is, mm-hmm. okay, so, you know, we want to be orchestral. We want to uh, push ourselves, but let's do it within the limits or let's do it within the, uh, the bones or the formula of a fish with, and, you know, play to everybody's strengths. And that's what basically they do, uh, on, on this record, um, they definitely, they do come across as a band that cut their teeth in cafeterias and in clubs that only four or five people heard because yeah. there's a there's a freedom on this record and that kind of defines it. Like you said, you know, you mentioned the uh, the three, you know, staples, Divided Sky, David Bowie, You Enjoy Myself, especially You Enjoy Myself. That was the one that uh, tr- translated the best live. Uh, as we said, too, so they also snuck in some real songs like Fee. Um and I've always been a fan of uh, David Bowie, by the way, the, uh, the break on that, uh, 
I mentioned it last uh, episode when I when we were talking about uh, From the Mars Hotel by the Dead and Phil Lesh's song Unbroken Chain. About two minutes in, uh, three minutes, in, you can hear fish being born. And so take that and zoom it into David Bowie and uh, uh, also Fee in some respects too, which is the album opener, uh, really kind of jazzy, breezy uh, opener. And you get that sense that there is a direct lineage uh, there. Uh, really strong record. And like you said, they distributed on cassettes. It was basically a demo, wasn't it? It got better after that one though. Yep. In 1990 with Lawn Boy. This is their first album for an actual record label. They recorded this in, you know, in a studio and the record label was indie label, Absolute Agogo. And this album saw the band expand on their early sound with liberal doses of hard funk, as in bathtub gin, uh, Frank Zappa inspired zaniness and oddball jazz funk arrangements, songs like Split Open and Melt, while continuing to produce platforms for classic instrumental jams, songs like Run Like an Antelope. And here you're beginning to delve into sweetly melodic sing-along pop, Bouncing Around the Room, one of their best pop songs. All of these are among Fish's most iconic songs and some of the greatest songs in jam band history, up there with any of the classics by the Grateful Dead or the Allman Brothers Band. The aftermath of this album saw the band, already with their own management and booking agent at this time, tour beyond the East Coast and start to pitch their tent poles in various major cities and college campuses throughout the country. The nationalization of fish head culture begins here. Overall, I think this is one of the band's three best albums. Chris? Yeah, it's certainly my favorite. It is one of the best. I mean, the material is off the charts. I mean, it's just yeah. it's just a, uh, a really, th- this is their lightning in a bottle. I mean, it's just uh, everything just kind of hits the way it is. Even My Sweet One, which is kind of the goofy throwaway, is... Yeah so much fun and so well placed. I mean, it's a very well sequenced uh, record. Uh, Again, my personal favorite record. um, I saw a review. uh, It was kind of farting around looking to see if there were reviews and, uh, you know, fan reviews or whatever. And I found one on Barnes and Noble. It's actually their uh, promo promo copy. And uh, the the guy, whoever wrote it at Barnes and Noble calls it Fish's true statement of purpose. Hmm. And I certainly agree. Uh, this is really where fish became fish in all caps. Uh, objectively, it is badly produced, but who cares? Uh, the spirit <laughs> and energy are at a fever pitch again throughout the entire sequence. Uh, first and best appearance of bluegrass in the uh, in the fish catalog, uh, which would you know a couple times shows up in Rift, a uh, couple of times or and shows up in Billy Breeds too. But this is their first one, and it actually it combines bluegrass and barbershop quartet, so that's kind of clever. But as I said, it's, we talked about it earlier, they had this funk sensibility, they had this rhythmic sensibility where Anastasio could just like ride those taut waves. Um, And they they do it all over the place on this record and it's consistent and it's varied. Like the, the jam sections in Reba, much different than the jam sections in Run Like an Antelope. And uh, the cult uh, lives on. Uh, Here's an example. If you go to Etsy, which is the, uh, you know, the artisan uh, sort of consignment store online. Uh, you can find a, a t-shirt that someone did. Uh, it's not the album cover, but it's a very clever, it says lawn boy. 
And, you know, like some kid, it's almost like a Norman Rockwell painting of some kid uh, mowing the lawn, but it's clearly a fish thing. Uh, you can buy that for 20 bucks if you want. It's out nice. there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So have a memento uh, for a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful record. Their third album, A Picture of Nectar from 1992, is a major moment. Not just the album itself, but what it entailed and everything going around the band at the time. What's going on? Let me explain. For all you kiddies out there who know very little about the beginnings of the internet, back in 1991, there was such a thing called Usenet. Yep. <laughs> it was for what eventually became America Online chat groups and later internet forums and the blogosphere. And it was basically the chief feature of this newfangled thing called, quote unquote, the internet. Well, Bob Dylan and the Grateful Dead were among the first established rock acts to have their own Usenet newsgroups. Fish, however, were arguably the first of the new generation bands to start their own Usenet newsgroup in 1991. And it was instrumental in the growth of their burgeoning, deadhead-like army of devoted fans. On the strength of this and their reputation as an awesome live band, A&R representative Sue Drew uh, from Electra Records was an early champion of Fish and signed them to major label Electra Records. The first Electra album that came out in early 92, A Picture of Nectar, was not only a major step forward in national recognition for the band, but also a further expansion of their musical palette. Noticeable Latin music and Caribbean rhythms started to penetrate the band's prog rock, funk, jazz, cocktail, such as the epic jam platform Stash and the instrumental The Landlady. The band also showed their ability to rock out confidently with riff-led monster rockers such as Chalk Dust Torture and Tweezer, the latter being one of the all-time great funk rock hybrids up there with anything Jeff Beck or Edgar Winter ever did. Now, the year 1992 also saw Fish be a festival touring machine, as well as a workhorse band opening for a variety of big name artists, thereby expanding their already burgeoning Fish Head fan base. They were part of the inaugural Horde Festival, a traveling festival featuring like minded jam bands that saw Fish play alongside Blues Traveler, Widespread Panic, and the Spin Doctors. Yes, the Spin Doctors. Yeah, Spin, <laughs> spin Doctors were actually good up until about 93, and then they went right. downhill. Yeah. They did a U.S. tour opening for, of all things, of all bands, Violent Femmes. They, <laughs> they, they did. They also did the European Summer Festival Circuit. And shortly after that, they hopped on a brief European tour opening for, of all people, Lou Reed who, wow. contrary to one might expect, was highly complimentary toward the band. Later, they latched on as opening act for Santana's European tour, and they were so well-liked by Carlos Santana, who often invited members of Fish uh, to jam on stage with the Santana band during Santana's set, that they also opened for Santana in the U.S. leg of the tour. 
all of this within 1992. Chris? Yeah, amazing year for the band. And actually, that was the breakout of the jam band thing. Strange yeah. but true. And, and uh, we mentioned this during the uh, the golden age of the uh, fourth golden age of rock series that we did a couple months back that fish was not a quote unquote headliner band uh, yeah. on horde. Uh, there was a group of grouping of six of uh, those bands. Fish was not one of them. So they were on a significant number of those shows, which I believe at the time was only 12. Uh, they, they had a, a, a Northern leg and a Southern leg. And well, 12, 13, somewhere around there, but they were probably on half of those. So that's just some trivia. It's funny that you mentioned those uh, shows and those tours that they were on. Can you imagine uh, being a band having to follow fish? Like imagine fish opening for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and especially like the violent femmes who are, you know, basically one of those bands that just kind of sit or stand around and, you know, they're like, just like potted plants. I can just, <laughs> I can't even imagine. I mean, the only one that, you know, that Trey could have said top that to who actually topped them was Santana, you know, right. I mean, like, cause Santana live is just, I mean, that's another worldly experience too. Uh, as far as uh, a picture of nectar, I think that's really the first time that they capture the energy of the live shows. Uh, you know, Junta, you know, obviously is a bedroom recording. Uh, Lawn Boy uh, has the music and, you know, and the soul and that energy, but it doesn't really have that, uh, what would you call it? That kinetic kind of boom, you know, that, yeah. that, that firework. This one does. And straight out of the gate with Tweezer and uh, through uh, some of the others, like even Stash, like it has that energy, like, you know, Stash was one of those ones that when you heard live, everybody clapped along at the clap along yeah. uh, right, part, right. but they even capture that energy in the clap along on record. And so I think that's the most impressive thing about it. Uh, like you said, this was kind of their breakout year in the sense of the word of mouth uh, even had gotten to Western and central New York. Uh, my the first time I heard of fish was in 1992, beginning of my senior year. A uh, couple, they were good guys, but they were the stoners, the resident stoners in the, uh, in the class. Uh, but they would, they went, uh, I think one of them, because they did a swing, like five dates through New York and Pennsylvania, I actually followed them. And so I would hear about this and I knew they were coming, that they were a phenomenon. Uh, so uh, that, that's what you can say. Um, you know, being on Electra, obviously, uh, you know, gave them good wind, uh, so to speak. And yeah, it, it, it got them hooked up with Santana and Lou Reed. <laughs> well, yeah. And uh, that's just wild, by the way, Fish and Lou Reed. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess in terms of attitude, maybe it works. But in Park, Park, Park Puderball, a uh, music journalist, wrote a sure. biography of Fish in 2009. And he mentioned on the – it was a very brief tour. And, uh, they opened like four or five dates for Lou Reed, no more than that, in Europe, not in the States. And uh, uh, they remember there, there's a scene there where um, Fish are about to go on stage and Lou goes out there and tells Trey and the other guys, all right, boys, go out there and show them where rock and roll really – what country rock and roll really came from. Nice. You know, so that, yeah. that that's like the ultimate compliment uh, right yeah. there uh, coming coming from Reed. Yeah. And uh, for what it's worth, Park Puderball was one of the best uh, writers of his uh, generation. I remember uh, his stuff was really kind of uh, uh, influence uh, on me. For the younger listeners out there who um, really aren't that familiar with how this was really like you know, right after grunge alternative in, and indie. This was the next big 1990s 
rock phenomenon. Um, what it was like, okay, the jam band hierarchy. You had the A-team. The A-team was basically Fish and Dave Matthews Band, right? Yeah, in then terms of had, sales, yeah. Yeah. Then you had the B-team. The B-team was basically Blues Traveler and Widespread Panic, right? And then you had the C-team. The C-team of more mediocre bands like the String Cheese Incident, Moe, and the Gorilla Biscuits. Actually, kind of like the Gorilla Biscuits, but anyway. yeah, yeah, Gorilla Biscuits are fun. And hey, don't hate on Mo too much because uh, what's his name? <laughs> Al Schneer is from Utica, which is the next right. town over from Syracuse. Oh, but go- oh okay then. Yeah, hey, he, he, <laughs> it- Homer. But go ahead. <laughs> but anyway, back to the A team of Fish and Dave Matthews Band. What separated Fish from Dave Matthews Band, other than the fact that they were way better, um, Dave Matthews Band actually had hits. They had big commercial hits on the radio. They had MTV exposure that allowed them to grow their grassroots following and sell out arenas and big amphitheaters and whatnot. Fish did the same thing that the same level of commercial success that Dave Matthews had without any hit singles, with barely any MTV mention, without any of that. Fish achieved what Dave Matthews banned, and even more so with those huge multi-night festivals that, that, that attracted tens of thousands of people. Imagine if Fish actually had commercial hits and actually had hits on the radio and actually were on MTV. They would have been as big as Pink Floyd. You know, yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. And hey, uh, the only dif- the, the main difference between Fish and Dave Matthews is uh, Dave Matthews was a bona fide rock star. Uh, he, yeah, you know, we had he had the charisma and uh, he had the, uh, you know, the voice and, you know, the stage presence. And, you know, also uh, he had the, the kind of the weird uh, combo of uh, saxophone and violin in the same. Yeah. Band. So anyway, so there were like little touches that would be more engaging to a mainstream uh, audience. You know, John Popper, uh, he deserves more credit. He pretty much, without him, we don't talk about the jam band scene because he was kind of the, uh, I don't know if PR agent is too low. He was kind of the... um, kind of like the chief marketing officer, if you will, of the jam band scene, Uh, you know, because, you know, he was such a character, but he was out there saying, Hey, lots of good stuff going on. And here we have, uh, have uh, this. And so uh, Popper being on the B team, yes, they had, they were what a two hit wonder (laughs) there in 95, but, uh, uh, but they, they faded into the abyss. So I had to mention them real quick. All right, so the next album in the Fish chronology in this golden period of theirs, 1993, Rift. Fish's fourth album sees the album, uh, sees the, the band delve into darker, more serious territory with a concept album about a crumbling relationship. The band had hinted uh, at an evolving and maturing and increasingly hooky and catchy songcraft with Lawn Boy and A Picture of Nectar. With Rift, it came into full bloom. The turbocharged epic rocker Maze features one of Trey Anastasio's most blistering guitar solos. Fast Enough for You, which you mentioned, Chris, is a moving, gorgeous ballad. The title track, Rift, opens the album like a galloping horse 
with breakneck momentum containing alt- alternative and alternating vocals from Anastasio and keyboardist Paige McConnell that are so effective it makes one wonder why they never went back to that device uh, in the future. And with Fish.net run and operated by fans, the band become one of the first, if not the first bands to foster their exploding underground popularity by utilizing the exploding popularity of the of the nascent internet. And by 93, the band and their fish head horde of fans were selling out two to 3,000 capacity theaters throughout the country, all without anything resembling a hit single on radio or MTV exposure, something that would become a motif throughout the band's career. Overall, and this is this happened during the Rift era. Overall, Rift combined their increasingly exquisite songwriting powers with their already excellent musical chops into some of the band's most awe-inspiring and career-defining work. As far as great traditional rock albums of the 1990s go, non-indie grunge alternative division, Rift ranks right up there with anything the Black Crows or Los Lobos did. Chris? Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with that. Uh, you know, they, there's a surprising sophistication to the production. And it's obviously it's it's less jammy and less clever and sort of the energy in some spots, you know, like you said, uh, Maze especially and uh, It's Ice for a while was a uh, was a concert favorite. Uh, this one was just this was tasteful. Uh, this is tasteful. Yeah. This tasteful fish. That tasteful could be actually ta- uh, that fish could actually be tasteful, uh, and so really impressive record. Uh, I was big into it. That was Maze, or excuse me, uh, Rift, and the song Maze. That's what really got me hooked on the band. Yeah, uh, right. I was drawn in by Hoist, but it was Rift that really made me really excited. And for a couple of years, I was a, I was, I guess you could call me a fish head uh, there. So uh, one point about this record. Uh, the star of this record really is Paige McConnell. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of the better vocal performances in the, if not the two best in Fish's recorded catalog are on this record uh, when that's uh, Rift and it's Ice. Uh, so he uh, Im- impresses as a singer and the piano playing all throughout is just exquisite. And uh, the piano solos are just consistently in some, in a couple of songs, I think even on Rift, the piano solos are more impressive than Anastasio's guitar. Um, yeah. Kind of a bold statement, but uh, no, this is definitely Paige McConnell's record. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, it's one of their very best. And I think it's uh, it's really like one of those roots rock underrated records. And it's, it's fish proving they could, like I said, they could do dark and serious and do it really well. They did a great job with it. And they, they would come back to this in a couple of records later on down the line. Arturo and I now both use the same microphone, and what a darn good mic it is. If you've been with us for a while, you might notice we don't sound nearly as crappy or as clueless as we did in our first episode back there in January 2021. We're maturing, man. If you have any inkling to launch your own podcast, we recommend using the Ars Technica 2100X USB. It's a high-quality cardioid mic, that helps limit ambient noise and echo, and also gives a richness to your voice that you just won't get from a cheaper model. 
and its USB attachment allows you to record conveniently using your laptop and software like Zencaster, the excellent program we use to record ourselves natively from Texas and South Korea. It's as close to a super souped-up XLR system you can get for about 100 bucks. Find this Ars Technica gem on Amazon, or perhaps ask a locally-owned music store to send you in a more indie direction. Now, one note before we move on to uh, the next uh, set of uh, Fish albums. Arturo, you mentioned Fish.net. Um, yes, it was one of the first of those fan affinity uh, sites. Pearl Jams broke out about the same time. I mean, this mm. is 1994. And so I spent a lot of time on the Pearl Jam site. And I remember that was being the fall of 94. So they definitely were on the early thing. But that is such a vibrant community. And uh, in case people didn't realize, fish.net is thriving today. And, you know, those of us that kind of pride ourselves as researchers or, you know, sort of folks that can go find the story, you know, the training, and whether it's researcher, journalist, attorney, you know, English uh, major, uh, you know, you would think that we would want to dig and take pride in finding books and, you know, old articles and, you know, studying geography and like, you know, do a, a thesis on the University of Vermont and that kind of stuff. Fish.net is by far the best source for all that shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, pretty much every set list they ever did. Uh, there are uh, real fan written articles and there's so much history and there's a lot of commentary and it is the still the gathering place. And so if you haven't been there in like 25 years, go there, it's still there and it's still uh, really awesome. And so, yes, they were a pioneer of the internet affinity uh, medium. Speaking of the internet, 1994, the year the internet blew up and the year fish kind of blew up themselves with their album Hoist. This was their most accessible, radio-friendly album to date, and it coincided with the unexpected explosion in their popularity. And the band, during this time, they jumped from theaters to mid-sized arenas, all, again, without a hit single or video. Yet, despite the seeming drift to the mainstream, the album is criminally underrated and contains some of the band's most enduring songs. Seriously, like I alluded to earlier, if we made a top 10 list of albums that should have been commercially huge, this one would be near the top. How did big rock Candy Mountain arena sing-along songs like Down With The Disease, Julius, and Sample In A Jar not take off on rock radio? How did If I Could, a beautiful duet ballad with Alison Krauss, not become a huge pop hit? Electra seriously dropped the ball here with their marketing and promotion. Or maybe they just didn't bribe enough radio stations. Who knows? Instead, fucking Dave Matthews and his annoying voice. And for a brief time, sorry, Chris, I'm not a Blues Traveler fan. Fat-ass Republican voting John Popper and Blues Traveler crossed over to the pop charts instead. What a crock of shit. Hey, Nevertheless... I- Hey, uh, one, one clarification. I didn't say I was a blues traveler fan. I'm a fan of John Popper, the guy and the harmonica player and the promoter and, yeah. you know, sort of the father of the scene. Uh, right. Blues traveler, the band, not so much. So right. I had to put that in. Yeah. 
Nevertheless, even if Hoist did not take off commercially, Fish's career certainly did, and they became logical heirs to the Grateful Dead's crown as king of the jam bands. As I said before, 1994 is the year Fish graduated to large outdoor amphitheaters and mid-sized arenas and becoming one of the music industry's least likely success stories. Also, the aftermath of this album and the seemingly endless two-year tour that followed resulted in a live one, like you mentioned earlier, Chris. The live album from 1995, in my opinion, one of the greatest and most overlooked live albums of all time. What also happened in 1995? Jerry Garcia died from a heart attack at the age of 53, and his death meant all those younger generation deadheads crossed over the aisle to fish and became fish heads, resulting in fish the, the cult of fish becoming even bigger. Chris? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that the, the fact that uh, fish's rise and Garcia's demise uh, overlapped is you know, one of those act of God force majeure things, just sort of a happy yeah. accident. Right. Uh, right. In terms of, like you said, inheriting, uh, you know, the deadheads, you know, where are we going to go now? Uh, well, that's one of the places that they were able to go. So I first get introduced to fish by hearing down with disease on yeah. the radio. Right. And they say that's fish. And I'm like, wait a second, that's fish. Because mm-hmm. in my head, you know, because of the jam band, uh, you know, a buzz that they had had, that they were way noodlier uh, than that. But here comes this really focused, uh, really awesome pop song. It's so fun. You know, it's got that bounce to it. Uh, it's got a, a fun lyric and uh, one of Trey's best riffs. Uh, and like you said, it's hard to believe that from what I remember, uh, the label actually did make a quote unquote push for fish. I mean, that's how they got on MTV. That's how they got on the radio. But, and so this was kind of their introduction for people that weren't apt to work hard and still rely on the radio and still get fed what they're supposed to yeah. like. Uh, so there was a little bit of that. The fact that it didn't take off, like, like down with disease should have been like a number one modern rocket for months. Uh, yeah. So, which is pretty special. And, and again, it's, it's this record's kind of forgotten. You know, I yeah. mean, when people think about fish, they think about albums, they probably think, uh, just my opinion, Billy Breeds first, then the live record, then Lawn Boy, and then, you know, then the other scattered ones. I mean, this one kind of gets left out of the conversation for whatever strange reason. Uh, besides Down With Disease, I think a lot of people might know Down With Disease, but they probably don't know what album it's from. Yeah. But, <laughs> which is... The, the funny part is like three or four, if you were to make a list of their 15 best songs, at mm. least three of them are on this record. Yeah, I know. Totally. Really underrated record. Yeah, absolutely. And very proficient studio. Like like the Axilla jam is like mm. to capture that much energy and that much sound and that much layering, you know, it's kind of like there's a lot going on there. And, you know, with, with the, uh, the overdub vocals and, you know, the, the keyboards and all of that, that's just like, I mean, it makes me think of like Dr. Teeth from the Muppet show. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, so that's just wonderful that they, again, maybe in a way they were kind of like the dead, well, not quite as uh, decadently, but kind of like the dead in their Oxomoxoa, Oxomoxoa period, uh, where it's like, Oh, cool. Knobs. Uh, so yeah. And so no, it's pretty, pretty exciting record. Yeah. All right. The next one 
and the fish in this golden era of fish is probably their greatest album. Billy mm-hmm. breathes from 1996. No, probably about it. Yeah. As we previously discussed in our epic award-winning series, the fourth golden age of rock in August, 1996, Fish put on a one-band, two-night festival called the Clifford Ball and drew 80,000 people to a decommissioned Air Force base in Plattsburgh, New York. The resounding, unexpected success of the festival meant the mainstream music media's eyes were finally on Fish. Also, with the death of Jerry Garcia and the demise of the Grateful Dead, Fish concerts became the destination for hippies, druggies, and anyone seeking the psychedelic experience. Combined with their already massive cult following, Fish were now playing big-time arenas, usually reserved for the likes of Bruce Springsteen, R.E.M., and Pearl Jam. All of this led to eager anticipation for Fish's sixth album, Billy Breathes, and that anticipation was rewarded commercially. The album peaked at number seven on the Billboard album charts as well as artistically for its arguably the band's finest moment on record. With its gorgeous acoustic guitar textures, the lush dreamlike feel of the album evokes a beauty that they never really returned to. Uh, It's also the absolute pinnacle of the band's songcraft with the beautiful ballad Waste, like you alluded alluded to earlier, Chris, Mm -hmm. the anthemic riff rocker Free, the sultry, dreamy Billy Breathes, and the soaring epic Prince Caspian. The album's well-known producer, Steve Lillywhite, who had previously worked with Susie and the Banshees, U2, Morrissey, and Dave Matthews Band, called Billy Breathes, the best stoner album since Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Now, I would not go that far. I would not either. It is a terrific stoner-friendly album, and and like you said, Chris, undoubtedly Fish's studio masterpiece. Yeah, from uh, the little bit I can remember, and there's a reason I can't remember it, uh, Lawn Boy is better uh, for for green test uh, satisfaction. (laughs) But anyway, uh, this is actually the sober record. This is the record that you listen to when you're, you know, wanting to mellow and sort of uh, even yourself out. Uh, yeah. Great record, um, really. Uh, it sounds gorgeous. Uh, they were, I think, that you know, with down with disease and uh, hoist, yeah, because that didn't hit the way they wanted. They probably went into there uh, with a chip on their shoulder. They knew that they had their moment. They knew that they were at their apex. And so, like yeah. you said, they did the Clifford Ball that summer. They did the Remain in Light thing uh, in uh, in six uh, in that uh, 96, that fall, the Halloween show, and uh, just a special year. And so I think they knew that this was their their best chance to build that legacy with non-fish heads. And they did it. Uh, they really did it. Um, Cas- Prince Caspian as an album closer is perfect. That's one of Trey's uh, greatest riffs, probably my favorite riff of his. I mean, that's just a a fantastic song Uh, for years. uh, I used Caspian as uh, the root of my password. I don't anymore. Mm -hmm. So sorry, folks, you got to go identity theft, somebody else. But Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that shows you what this kind of meant to me, just orally, you know, a U R a L L Y and uh, spiritually. That's what uh, that song uh, meant to me. Uh, I think the the title track is fantastic because that has some country mm-hmm. music, bluegrass, uh, sort of Appalachian influences uh, to it too. 
um, free is a wonderful uh, album opener character zero. I always kind of mm. liked it's a little dopey, uh, yeah. but it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's great dopey because of the energy of it. And that's uh, kind of pretty much like this is where Tom Marshall kind of grew up, but yeah. that was kind of like his last vestige of true goofiness mm. uh, in terms of the rhyme uh, scheme and the sort of the, you know, the, the chorus, which is like, uh, there must've been a guy named Okehi that they either really liked or they really hated. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah. And, and again, you know, the fact that they were able to recruit Steve Lillywhite, uh, shows the kind of respect that they had in the music industry at that point. Yeah. Right. And they, and also that they had arrived at, if not a level budget, at least like B plus a minus budget level. Right. Right. And so, uh, that's, that's pretty special. So, Kind of their, you know, I mean, a lot of the critics back then, and I guess it still holds, it's their American beauty. It's yeah, where they, it it's really kind of, is. it's kind of where they kind of prove themselves as being sort of, uh, not just musical wonderkins, but like soulful, you know, it's like, you know, Trey, you know, it, it wasn't all about, you know, the, the frets, you know, yeah. and the pedals yeah. that he had actually, yeah. you know, that the soul uh, was there and here right. is, uh, where they proved it. And like we said, uh, this was the peak the absolute peak, the Billy Breeds, uh, Clifford Ball, uh, Halloween show uh, trio or triad. And inevitably, when you're at the peak, nowhere to go but down. And right. unfortunately, this is kind of where that starts. Yeah. And this starts with their seventh album from 1998, The Story of the Ghost. Alas, as you said, Chris, all great streaks come to an end. And Fish hit a bit of a snag with this album. Curiously, the meticulous and careful craft of Billy Breathes, after that, Fish responded with an underwhelming album culled from pieces of improvisational jams in the studio. The result is uneven, uninspired, and frankly, really disappointing. It seemed like the band turned a corner with Billy Breathes, and with the story of the ghost, Fish treaded backwards. Everything that critics of Fish criticized him for, aimless jamming, weak songwriting, shitty vocals, corny lyrics, they were all on display here. Fortunately, the album didn't derail the band's momentum. By this time, enormous multi-night festivals drawing tens of thousands of people were a yearly occurrence for the band as they were now genuinely one of the most popular bands and biggest concert draws in America. Nevertheless, there are some golden nuggets on this album. You have the time signature shifting prog rock epic Gaiuti, which dated back a few years earlier. It wasn't really a new track. Right. Yeah, that's a fun um, song. Yep. The delectable pop rock of Water in the Sky and the polyrhythmic excursion of Limb by Limb. So it's not all crap, but it's kind of mostly crap. Chris? Yeah, it's about one third okay, real uh, one third good, two thirds crap. I also like Birds of a Feather. Uh, I think yeah. I think that's got an energy to it. But yeah, no. So there's a couple of things about this record. Like you said, I think that you know that's sort of you know nowhere to you know how do we top that? Well, they came in and there was probably some burnout starting to happen here. Yeah, that they yeah for sure they had, they had been nonstop at it since 1984, 1985 with yeah. very little hiatus. And so I think that starts to show. And then I think it's pretty obvious, and, and Trey has even said it, that uh, around this time, that's where the freebasing on the bus caught up with them. 
Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he developed uh, multiple uh, addictions to substances. And I think that that, much like it happened to the dead in the, mm-hmm. the sort of the mid, like the post-Blues for Allah period. And then uh, again, in the end of their run, it, it definitely had an effect on their output. Uh, and so, you know, less prolific, like you said, this is where they started to recycle uh, some, some live favorites and stuff that they had been workshopping for years. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the jams, and I'm going to tell a story in a minute about how bad it had gotten here. Mm. Uh, the jams were now insipid and uninspired. Um, you know, they started covering Boogie on Reggae Woman around this time and great song, great cover. It was fun. The jams to it. No, no, they should have just, they should have kept it, uh, clean and avoided the jams because it was bass, bass driven slop. Uh, they kind of, relied on, I think Mike Gordon kind of was more the driver of the jams for 98, 99, 2000, yeah. which is too bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Stick to, stick to bluegrass, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so here's my story. So I can't remember what they call it. I don't even think it had a name at this point. The fourth of those big air force or airport air base, uh, shows in 1999 was a little North of my hometown. Uh, Fulton, New York, about an hour. And there's a little, it's Volney Airport, I believe it's called, a uh, little airport. And, but it was enough to get, again, 75, 80,000 people. Uh, and so I'm working for this outfit called SonicNet at the time, which I think had just been bought by MTV. And I had been bugging uh, their public, officious publicists for an interview with uh, the band because I thought that that was important at that point and just to see where they're at and what's next and just sort of, uh, you know, price of success kind of thing. And they kept, you know, kicking it down the road to the point where I think they got annoyed with me. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah. uh, so I was supposed to go up there and I'll try to keep this relatively short. So I was going to go up there. I thought I was going to get an interview with at least, uh, Anastasio and Gordon. Uh, and you know, you get the pass into the show, Okay, so getting up there is a disaster because at that point I'm going to bus to Syracuse and borrow my father's car. Mm. Uh, bus breaks down, mm. uh, and you know driver must spend like twenty three, twenty four, and so he's bitching until we get a for about an hour, like nonstop, and uh, until we get another bus. That was the hottest goddamn month of my life. It must have Jeez. been. If it was 99 outside, it was 110 in the bus. Uh, get to Syracuse finally at like 1230 in the morning. Uh, wake up the next morning. Turns out that my uh, dad, my father, and my stepmother are in a protract- protracted fight. Uh, <laughs> won't divulge details, but they're in a nasty uh, way at that point. So, uh, well, great. I come right into this. Borrow dad's car. Drive up to the airport. Uh, go to check in. Now, remember, it's about 100 degrees and you're on an air base or you're on an airport strip, which means it's like 115 down there, right? Mm. Go to check in. I check in, find out I'm not getting the interview. Go back to the car, lock the keys in the car. <laughs> and so I'm reporting this and they're sa- they keep telling me that, uh, you know, obviously it's a show. We'll get security out there as soon as we can to jimmy your car. And so yeah. I'm out there. I don't want to go anywhere. You know, I'm a dumb 23-year-old kid at the time. Well, this goes on for three hours. In the scorching heat with no cover, I was wearing a hat 
uh, didn't work so well. I was wearing like a fisherman's hat. Didn't work as well as it should have. Uh, had no water. And <laughs> the way I finally got in the car was that these two members of their crew came out to basically smoke the equivalent of a joint in a paper bag. It was like, I don't know what the hell they were using, but it was like some paper container that was like about seven inches, eight inches long, maybe even longer than that. You know, a couple of, you know, stereotypical guys. I finally asked them to see if they can jimmy me. And one of them happened to have like a coat hanger type thing or some sort of jimmy thing on them. And finally get in the car. Well, by this point, I am now dehydrated. I know that now because I'm getting woozy and I'm getting, you know, fuzz in the eyes. Yeah. I'm, f- I'm feeling the heat, all that. I'm supposed to meet up with a couple of friends of mine too. And at one point I have to take a really, really bad piss and I can't find a bathroom. And so I bought a bottle of water, you know, drank a little bit of the water, emptied it out, pissed in the bottle. Oh and, God. And the piss was like orange Gatorade. And so, yeah, and I'm I'm only mentioning this because, uh, and uh, Brian Hyatt of Rolling Stone uh, will appreciate this because the next week, the next weekend I covered Woodstock 99. Oh, that was a great month. Uh, (laughs) But I did that. I finally found my buddies. Now, at this point, they were starting to attract. I mean, the drugs, like any scene, the drugs were actually probably starting to change. And so, and it was too hot and you, and 15 year old tweakers and a thing out in the tent. So it went from being like sort of this organic community to now like 15 year old tweakers, uh, shooting off fireworks. One of which went right into the side of my friend Stu's tent. (laughs) We're lucky it didn't burn up. Uh, and so, uh, get through it. It, It's not a good show. It's six sets. Uh, great version of guy. Ute. that was the highlight on the, the second day. Um, I get home. I write the I write the article. It was a good article, um, and you know by the end of the show I didn't give a hoot, and uh, so I just kind of enjoyed the last setup by the the soundboard. I just kind of let mm. loose, and of course that got back to the publicists. Um, <laughs> so I got a little bit of flack from the editors. Well, the the main gift that came on uh, that kept on giving. Oh, and I had to drop off the car while my folks were still in an argument. Enjoy. <laughs> uh, is that I had what I now realize was probably a second degree sunburn on the back of my neck as in like neon purple, uh, with flaking skin and probably some pustule kind of thing. Oh going God. On. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I, I think I, I creamed it and I think I bandaged it for a couple of days, but then I had to cover Woodstock with this thing on exposed and like legitimately, like at least Brian and maybe my editor, they were like legitimately concerned. I mean, I, I, I worked Nobody stopped me. I mean, it was chaotic. I mean, I did 17 stories in four days and we were just pumping and, you know, Woodstock 99, you know, was a clusterfuck Uh, anyway. And so I probably almost died twice. (laughs) (laughs) And it was because of Fish's uh, Fish's shittiest of those uh, airstrip shows. So there you go. What we do for rock and roll. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Top, top that motherfucker. Speaking of that, this will segue into our final album of Fish's Golden Period. And this is actually has a positive ring to it. Thank you. What we, what we do for rock and roll on New Year's Eve 1999 to celebrate the millennium, Fish played another one of their massive two-night festival shows, this time at the big Seminole Indian. We shouldn't say Indian anymore. It's a Native, Native American. American. 
whatever, reservation in the Florida Everglades, except this one had a twist. Over 75,000 people got to see the band take the stage at 11.35 p.m. and continue to play almost eight hours until sunrise on January 1st. It was an astounding feat of endurance, performance stamina, and yes, musical improvisation that not only went down in fish lore, but is perhaps one of the greatest concert achievements in music history. Oh yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And and yeah. actually Anastasio at this point, I guess, was back to from what I understand, I've heard the tapes, he actually played really well. Yeah, he he actually got himself a bit clean and sober for this. Perhaps. Um, and it was perhaps. And it was with this as the backdrop that later in spring 2000, Fish released Farmhouse. And which is, I think, at this point, their eighth album. After the underproduced, meandering mediocrity of the story of the ghost, Trey Anastasio took command for the next album. He wrote or co-wrote every song on the album. And while the credits gave him co-production credit with Bryce Goggins, by all accounts, Anastasio commandeered the studio for the recording of the record, making this an Anastasio solo album in all but name. And you know what? The record is better off for it. Farmhouse is not only a successful rebound after the disappointment of the story of the ghost, it's one of Fish's most cohesive, consistent, well-produced, clear-sounding albums consisting of several songs that the band had been playing live since the mid-1990s. The title track is an anthemic sing-along that quotes the melody from Bob Marley's No Woman, No Cry. Bug is a rousing stormer of a track with Tom Marshall's lyrics gleefully celebrating his atheism. How about that? Hmm. Uh, Heavy Things is the closest thing Fish ever had to a hit single, hitting number two on Billboard's adult alternative tracks chart. And it's easy to see why with its insanely catchy pop rock bounce. This is not Fish's best album, but honestly... It's probably my personal favorite and without a doubt, their final great studio album. Chris. Oh oh yeah. This album pops uh, all the way through it. You know, it's not perfect, but it pops and it's, it's, I think it's like the most, even more than Billy breeds. It's like right there immediately jumping out of the speakers. Like you said, heavy things, a great song farmhouse, which they've been playing for years. That's one thing to, to note that there's several songs on here that they, that were very well road tested. And so this yeah. wasn't a complete go in the studio or go off on your corners and write all new songs kind of album. Yeah. It was kind right. of one it, at that point, maybe they were so burned out. It was like, let's keep going and yeah. we'll make a good record, but maybe we'll just put some old stuff in here. Uh, yeah. I like, I think the end of the record is very strong uh, yeah. with uh, sand and first tube. Uh, yeah. You know, first tube, I think was one that uh, that was a new song. I don't think that they had uh, road tested that one yet. So show that they could still do it. Um, but, you know, obviously there was a lot more going on than we realized. Because you got to remember at this time, as far as I know, Paige McConnell's living in New York City. Uh, Trey is back in Princeton. Um, and I think one, one of those guys remained in Vermont. And so now they're actually like what happens to a lot of bands like REM. This happened with now you have a diaspora that they're yeah. not, they're not like four guys against the world. And right. so they're, they're growing up. Uh, they're probably burned out, maybe a little sick of each other. You know, like I said, you know, Trey had his personal uh, issues. And so it's kind of 
uh, fascinating that they put out an album this strong and this marketable. Right. Like less than six months before they uh, called it, called it a day or they went on, yeah. uh, went on hiatus. hiatus. Yeah. yeah. And I remember that reading that it was like October or November of 2000. Neil Strauss, Strauss uh, wrote a song or wrote a song, wrote a, an article uh, in the New York times. And it stunned me. I was like, are you kidding? Cause like, you know, I thought that that was, like you said, they had come up with the kind of thing where they could go on forever. And yeah. all of a sudden now it's, uh, now it's stopping. Uh, another funny, uh, quick personal story. So, uh, I wrote a review of this, um, album for MTV.com, you know, in my twenties, I was cool. Uh, and so, um, this thing got plagiarized word for word by some 22 year old kid just out of college in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, only reason I found out about it was because there was a guy that worked at uh, Sonicnet for me, one of the techie guys who was from Scranton mm -hmm. and, you know, was friends, you know, he actually worked at that alt weekly, uh, or interned there. And so he caught beat of this and like, you know, most plagiarizers are at least smart enough to mix it up and have some plausible deniability. Uh, this mm -hmm. guy like literally cut and paste <laughs> word, word for word and just used my headline. Or use Billy's headline, you know, and uh, built my editor. And so uh, I just thought that was funny. And like, maybe I should be flattered. But if he had made some effort, I would have let it go. But I, I wrote a very inspired kind of acidy uh, toned uh, email to the editor. And the guy was like, he was profusely apologetic, you know, and fi <laughs> fire. He, he, he emails me and he says, can you know, you send me yours, send him mine. Comes back on five minutes later. Yeah, I just fired him. Uh, yeah. So whatever. So that well, was Chris, Chris yeah. imitation. Imitation is the finest form of flattery. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, but at least, you know, like, come on, at least, you know, I mean, gold buttons versus black buttons, you know, mix it up <laughs> a little bit, you know? So, okay. Anyway, I digress. And so, anyway. uh, yeah, the end of the, yeah, the end of the road of the classic period for fish was actually a really weird time in my life. So that's why this, we said this album or this episode was personal. Uh, for me, it's the end that's more personal than the beginning, for sure. Well, let us add a postscript to this golden period of fish that really ends in 2000. And let me add what really should be added and should be said about what happened to the band afterward. So like we said, and like you alluded to, Chris, the band continued touring until October 2000 before going on an indefinite hiatus. And they sure needed it. <laughs> they mm -hmm. had been going hard with recording and touring nonstop since the late 1980s. And by the end of the 1990s, as mentioned earlier, their live shows started to suffer. Whether it was overall fatigue, the band members getting sick of each other, or Trey Anastasio's worsening drug addiction, the band's onstage performances were becoming lethargic and predictable something no one would have ever accused Fish of being earlier in the decade. Yeah, and and, and the crowd was becoming actually kind of dangerous. It, it, yeah. it, it wasn't the same crowd. Exactly. The demographic change in their audience became startling and unfortunate as well. Free-spirited, harmless hippies with their pot, mushrooms, LSD, ecstasy, drug cocktail were still in abundance. But like the Grateful Dead before them, a darker element started to permeate fish head culture. 
you had a combination of macho, aggressive frat boy types and their boozing and an underworld drug dealer element peddling harder drugs such as heroin, crystal meth and crack that infiltrated both the parking lots and inside the arenas, making fish concerts no longer the cuddly, happy-go-lucky experience they used to be. Um, The band ended their hiatus in late 2002, and while they were still able to string together some strong performances throughout the 2003 tour, the band seemingly broke up for good in 2004 after a horrible performance at their Coventry Festival in Vermont. Anastasio's drug issues were really causing problems within the band, and judging from their exceedingly crappy recent couple of albums, 2002's Round Room and 2004's Undermind, they were creatively spent. After being busted for drug possession in 2006, Anastasio spent most of 2007 undergoing drug rehabilitation. Lo and behold, Fish reunited in 2009. While no longer touring at the breakneck pace they used to work uh, under during their 1990s heyday, to this day, with the exception of the year they took off in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic, they still tour on a moderate schedule of roughly 50 shows per year. Now, you out there listening, you may be wondering, why haven't we analyzed any of Fish's post-2000 studio output? There's a reason for that. In yours truly, curmudgeon's personal opinions, those albums simply suck. (laughs) I already referred to the albums Round Room and Undermind as being pretty shitty, and frankly, the same could be said for the below subpar quality of 2009's Joy, 2014's Fuego, and 2016's Big Boat. Hey, after all, One of the four curmudgeonly tenets of this podcast is every band has a shelf life and no one is good forever. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah. The 2009 record is actually pretty good. Um, Really? I I think it kind of sucks. All all (laughs) things considered. Well, best of the four, I guess not saying much, but they got a couple, they got like one or two, like at least one song in mild rotation that was pretty successful on sort of whatever was left of modern rock radio uh, at the the time. So they had that most interesting thing anybody did uh, post 2000 uh, in terms of fish and fish members, Oysterhead. Ah, yes. Got to give, got to give a quick shout out to Oysterhead. This is a super group with Anastasio, uh, Les Claypool, the bassist from Primus and Stuart Copeland from police. Uh, yes, the police. You, yes, you heard that right. Um, like the <laughs> like the three strangest, like kind of like you know, like wackiest genius players in the same band. And yeah, it was a wacky, uh, madly sort of oddly mad genius kind of record. Uh, it was a fun record to like walk around to, uh, and still kind of a fun treadmill record um, for sure. And so uh, I encourage folks to go find that record. Let me, I want to put a ribbon on this with some positivity. Sure. Uh, By the time the 2010s rolled around, Fish had become a legacy act. You go to their shows to experience the carnival-like atmosphere of Fish head culture. Hopefully you'll score some good drugs and listen to a band of virtuoso veterans. Hopefully add some new flavor to their old classic songs with improvisational mastery. The key word here, folks, and all our friends out there, is 
legacy. Yes. For a band that started out heavily indebted to their forebears, particularly the Grateful Dead and 1970s prog rock bands like Yes and Genesis, Frank Zappa, Santana, they undoubtedly carved their own place in rock history with their own unique spin on hippie jam band rock. Whether it's on satellite radio or a Spotify playlist, you know a song is by Fish when you hear it. They develop their own distinct sound with a dizzyingly eclectic palette of sounds and genres that incorporated jazz, funk, Latin music, progressive rock, art rock, country, folk, blues, and even traces of electronica in their jams from their naughties shows. They reinvented the traveling hippie jam band circuit for a new century. They not only revived the notion of the multi-night music festival in America, but they reinvented it and set a template that influenced generations of music fans and concert promoters. It doesn't matter if you dislike Fish's brand of music. They fucking matter. And they made an indelible impact, not just on the music scene, but on American culture as a whole. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame beckons them, or at least it should. At least it should, yes. And with that, we've come to the end of our latest uh, foray uh, into uh, rock and roll's uh, history and continuing our masterful uh, place uh, in the greater universe. Uh, The Carmudgeon Rock Report uh, belongs to you. Uh, You can find us or send us a message at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, you can also join our uh, curmudgeonly community on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash curmudgeonly. And yeah, we're, we're back and active on Twitter. So you can uh, find us there and, and, and hit us up. And, you know, we, we have some things percolating. Uh, also, I should mention we're going to have a Spotify playlist uh, attached uh, to this episode uh, as well. Uh, we'll probably just dump all the albums we talked about in there and let you uh, do some exploring. So studio, studio tracks, not the twenty-minute jam versions. Correct. From the live correct. shows. The studio, <laughs> yeah. Don't, yeah. Fear not. Fear not. We won't. We won't torture you like that. And so that's it, Arturo. Uh, what's next up for our forty-fourth uh, episode in the history of the show? We are going to tackle a little more, a slightly more contemporary band. Uh, and this band started in the noughties, in the mid to late noughties. And right now, as we speak, they are one of the mo- one of the biggest indie cult bands in America. They're, they're not quite an arena band, but they have a huge online fan base on blogs and social media. They're called, well, they used to be called VOCs. Now they're just called OCs. They came into prominence about a decade ago with that uh, garage psychedelic rock band revival that included Ty Siegel and King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. We've talked a lot about those two artists, but we haven't really talked a lot about the OCs or just OCs. And they really deserve an episode to themselves because they have a dense discography that warrants some filtering. And there's some great music in there that explains why they have such a huge, big cult following right now. And that's a band that deserves some consideration. They're modern-ish because their, their leader, John Dwyer, is actually two years older than us. 
So there if you you're go. older than if you're older than us, you're old. Yeah, at this point, yeah, <laughs> you're pretty old. Yeah, that, tell that to my back; it'll agree. <laughs> <laughs>